The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. In the animal kingdom, you're ultimately prioritizing your basic needs to be fulfilled, community, and enjoy with others. You're not prioritizing for growth and greed. You're not saying, I need more than my neighbor. I need more than this. I don't have enough. In our modern Western world and modern China world as well, that is priority one. I need more. I need more things. I need more stuff. And it really creates a lot of problems. I am James Veraldi. Welcome to Modern Minorities. This is the show about work and life, told through the lens of what makes each of us different. I'm Sharon Lee Tony, a Chinese-American girl born and raised in New York City. And I'm Raman Segal, an Indian-American boy who came from Alabama with a banjo on my knee. Through conversations with some really interesting people, we uncover the stories, perspectives, and often unspoken truths about how our guests uniquely experience the world. It doesn't matter where you're from, the color of your skin, or who you love. We're all minorities somehow, but we're no one's model minority. This is a show about all of you, for all of us. On today's show, we're speaking with James J. Viraldi. Jay is a conservationist, and he's the co-founder and co-host of Animalia, a really great podcast about conservation. Animalia is really interesting. It's a business that him and his sister co-founded because both have shared a love for animals from a really early age. And Jay, in general, is just a super interesting, thoughtful guy. I've known him almost my entire career doing cool video, internet, social media stuff. But I've always known he was kind of becoming woke on the side. And Animalia, their mission is really simple, to create positive touch points for people to support wildlife conservation through designer apparel that's sustainably sourced, content that educates and inspires people about wildlife, and frankly, experiences that bring wildlife conservation directly to our community. And you can find out more at iloveanimalia.com. And so Jay and I were just catching up. You know, he knew I was doing my podcast. I knew he was doing his. And I was just trying to understand his thesis. And what's interesting is his opinions, right, be they on plant-based diets, zero waste, conservationism, they're right and they're in the minority. Even myself, like I, I kind of know what he's preaching is the wrong word because he's not preaching. The things he talks about are the right things to be done. And yet, for some reason in our society, we choose not to make those choices. And it runs a really interesting parallel to what's going on in our society. Like, there are some hard choices that we have chosen not to make. And he, Jay's a white guy, to be very clear. But I asked him, I was like, do you sometimes feel like you're in the minority with these opinions, these beliefs, these practices? And he's like, absolutely. And so I wanted to unpack that a little bit. Obviously, we did the recording right in the middle of a lot of stuff going on in America. And he was very cogent. Like He's like, look, I know I come from a place of privilege, but there are some, there are some parallels to the topic. So that's really why I wanted to do this another very special episode. I don't know, Cher. And I, I really liked having him on the show. I think he definitely brought a fresh perspective. I know I'm I'm really vulnerable to that in some ways. Like I'll watch, what was it? I'll watch things like uh, Forks Over Knives or what was that thing? I watched some documentary on Netflix, What the Health. That was it. There's was this documentary called What the Health. Have, have you watched it, Roman? No, but, I, I, but Forks Over Knives and like anything Michael Pollan puts out, I'm like, yeah, yeah he's kind of yeah. right. Yeah, like I'll I'll watch his stuff or I'll read his books, but What the Health is a documentary. You should definitely watch it. And after I watched that, I literally became vegan for about three months because it was just so eye-opening to what, what happens. You said three months. Oh, what happened? So <laughs> I was pretty good about it, like totally, you know, plugging along, no meat, no, no dairy, no nothing. And then my brother-in-law, well, my now brother-in-law, got married in New Orleans. So we took a trip to New Orleans and I have a weakness for beignets. They're like my favorite thing in the world. And Cafe Du Monde in New Orleans makes the yeah. best beignets. Yeah. So I had and- to get one. So I got a beignet. So I had a little cheat moment. And then because we were in New Orleans, I also had some had to have some crawfish because we were there. 
So I did that. And then by then it was like, it was just over. So that whole weekend I was like, you know, shellfish and donuts and goodness knows what else. And and I found it really hard to kind of go back to. Well, and Jay doesn't, I mean, one of the, towards the end of the episode, we started talking about like practical things. Like you don't have to go completely to zero to cold Turkey, but it's like, we have to be doing better because it's not that society is bad. It's just, we're out of balance. And unfortunately, like we have this manifest destiny approach of like, we should be able to have our cake and eat it too, and have everything. And that approach and that Western mentality, frankly, or civilized mentality, you know, Mm -hmm. has made it really unpopular to scale back. Yeah. He actually talks a little bit about that too. He mentions how, because in, or rather he compares like modern society and the more commercialized societies to indigenous societies and how when he spent a lot of time with indigenous peoples, whether it be in, is it in Thailand where he he's, he's gone to the elephant? Uh, Laos and Laos. Laos and Laos when, where he, he visits an elephant sanctuary and he does a lot of work there. How people that have sort of like, you know, that aren't as connected with either technology or just don't live in the same modern world that we do, they're able to find so much more joy and connection with just the basic things in life. And that was, that was just really, I mean, something as truthful as that was, was really just interesting to hear from him. We talked a lot about animals as well, obviously, and his dog, who's his best friend. And, and we talked a lot about how animals are, are sort of programmed that way by nature, you know, as long as they're safe Fed. Well, no, not by nature, because he said we have a responsibility to dogs because we invented this species. That's true. Because yeah. we kind of domesticated yeah. a wild animal. Yeah. But it was just, but at the same time, his devotion and his responsibility to his best friend is, it's a beautiful thing. And I don't have a dog. I'm, I'm not a pet person because I, it's weird. It's not that I don't love animals. It's I don't want that responsibility because it's a, it's a heavy responsibility. But you have, you have a dog, Spider-Man, right? Spider-Man. He's the best. Spider-Man's the best. And like having a dog has changed my life. It's it's changed my understanding of our own behavior as humans, but it's also changed my understanding of relationships because dogs are completely loyal. They are able to love unconditionally and they're very simple in the same way that like their joy is very simple. Their needs are, as long as their basic needs are met, they are able to just kind of be in the moment. And there's something very special about that. And so as Jay was talking about his own experiences, I I, I could really relate to that point of view as well. Cool. Well, I think you're going to really enjoy our conversation with our pal Jay. Jay, thanks for coming on the pod. Yeah. Good to talk to you. Good to have you. Yeah, I want to unpack it really quick. You're a white guy. I am as white <laughs> as they come. <laughs> <laughs> and the listeners will have already heard my intro ramble about why you're on the show. But I don't know, man. I mean, why are you on the show? <laughs> you tell me. <laughs> well, you invited me. As we talked about, my action and viewpoint and obsession with conservation on this planet is a minority action. And we're gonna we're gonna talk about that, of course. I do want to start by personally acknowledging what's going on in this in this country right now, how inspired I am by it, but also how it's been a real week of reckoning for myself. And by that, I mean I have gone out of my way in my life to not be racist, to to be accepting of all, to treat everybody as equal, and it's dawned on me really for the first time. I, I joined the protest this weekend in Los Angeles where I live. It really was clear to me that that's so far from good enough that just treating everybody as equal only works if the system also treats everybody as equal, but the system does not treat everybody as equal. And it's been a reckoning for me that I have not done enough. I have not gone out of my way enough. I have not been proactive enough in improving the lives of black and brown people in this country. And I have settled, frankly, on being their friends, being their comrade, treating everybody equally, but it's, it's just not good enough. And until everybody sort of stands up and, and takes action and sustained action for prolonged periods of time and proactive action, the system won't change. And so 
I say that one because I, I just need to acknowledge it. And I think a, a lot of others in my shoes need to as well. But also it does dovetail very tightly into the work I, I do in conservation and in climate because the people who are hurt the most by natural disasters, pandemics are marginalized people. Look at what, look at the impact on black Americans of COVID-19. It has demonstrably impacted and killed more black Americans than any other type of American. That's because the lack of access to quality healthcare, the lack of access to quality living conditions. And these are all products of the oppressive nature of our society. And so the worst case scenarios of continuing to disregard our exploitation of the natural world and the bushfires are an example. And the bush, who did the bushfires hurt the most? They hurt the indigenous people in Australia. And I did a, a fundraiser for one of the indigenous communities in January. And I was shocked by so many people didn't even know there were indigenous communities in Australia. People literally think yeah, it's, it's all, all white, it's all, white people all, in Australia. Yeah, it's all yeah. Dundee, right? And yeah. who is who is hurt the most by the pandemic in this country? Black Americans, Hispanic Americans, and developed people in developing worlds. This is who is going to bear the brunt of our continued exploitation of the planet. So all these things are interrelated. Well, Jay, it's worth worth saying. Yeah, I mean, you're a white guy. I'm a Indian man. Sharon's a Chinese American girl, and we are minorities, but we're commenting on other struggles hard. And that's honestly, this is what puts you in the minority. And I say that proudly because, well, upsettingly as well, that you are in the minority. I wish your points of view were not in the minority. My friend Carl, who I, I keep referencing way too much, <laughs> I'm a fan, too much of a Carl fanboy. He's a white guy, works in diversity and inclusion. And something he said that really fired up my thesis of this show is if all you're saying is I'm not part of the problem, then you're part of the problem right? You, if, you, if you're just being a bystander. And so having a more, and even calling ourselves out personally, I know I don't do enough. I'm literally, I have friends who are protesting right now. And it's the first week of June. This episode will probably air further out from that. But, and I'm not because I have a little kid. Is that a good enough excuse? I don't, I've been thinking about that a lot, right? I don't know, Sharon, <laughs> what do you think? <laughs> I think that we're just in a, we're in a very unique time. You and I, recorded a special episode the other day. And so part of me feels like I'm not sure what to say because by the time everyone hears this, it'll be at least a month from now. And I don't know what the world is going to look like a month from now, but I do appreciate- Something I said on that was the idea of if we just let things go back to normal, then we've failed. Right. I think that part is definitely true. And so I do think that this is an interesting moment where I do think that a lot of people's eyes are being opened and their hearts are being opened in a way that we've never- experience before. And so I do think that there's some positive coming out of that. I tuned into President Obama's town hall yesterday, and he had some really encouraging words as well of just how inspired he's been with the amount of young people that have really been taking action. So I think there's positive, but I struggle myself every day. This week has felt very heavy every single day, professionally and personally, because I think professionally for us as marketers, we control the message, right? We help our clients to control their messages and those messages shape perception and those perceptions can become actions in society. And it's one of those things where something as innocuous as a photo that you might choose to sell a product, choosing a model to represent a sweater, so much of that matters now because who is that model and what's her background and are we showing enough diversity in those messages and just everything. I feel like I'm questioning everything because I feel like every, every choice and every action is contributing to the greater, the greater consciousness of society. Sharon, you want to know what I'm questioning? What? You're the only marketer. Jay and I are recovering marketers. (laughs) (laughs) So you've absolved yourself from the situation. (laughs) Yeah, we're, we're, no, no, we're all still marketing. You're marketing your podcast. I'm marketing <laughs> yeah, yeah. my startup. Come on, never ends. Right, right. Uh, I keep telling you. Well, okay. So I want to shift gears, Jay. I want people to learn about you. I've known you. Wow, we're cute. This is the rum and reality tour. I've known you since the beginning of my career when you were a video producer, and you've and done Zizer. a lot of really. Yeah, and then you did a bunch of other. Go look them up on LinkedIn. Two thousand eight, two thousand nine. Cool, yeah, if there's a cool brand, Jay worked on it. Right. That's awesome, Jay. But I want 
people to know who was Jay before that. Tell us a story from your youth. So as relates to the topic of discussion, the story that comes to mind is when I was seven or eight, I forget one of those ages, one of my, one of my oldest memories is we did a class trip to the Philadelphia Zoo. So at the time I was in elementary school in a neighborhood outside of Philadelphia. And this is my first time going to a zoo. It was exciting, right? I mean, what little kid doesn't get excited about going to a zoo? Within 10 minutes of being there, I went, I left, I went back on the bus and a faculty member, a teacher came up and asked what was wrong. I think they had assumed I was bullied or something like that had happened, but it was, wasn't that. With just walking in there, I had such a negative feeling looking around and just didn't seem right. I was too young to put my finger on why, but it just seeing these animals in these cages is so far from, they're not native to Philadelphia. And you can see the expression on their face when you really look at them, not look at them from a, well, how cool is it? There's a, a lion sitting here, but look at their face and it's, it's miserable. And it just felt bad. And I, it's all I had, all, all I could tell the teacher is I told him that place feels bad. That place just feels bad. I don't know why. I was way too young to articulate anything beyond that, but it's one of my oldest memories. And I was reprimanded for it, <laughs> for uh, refusing to go back into the zoo. You got in trouble for having a point of view. <laughs> yeah, as a, as a seven-year-old. And yeah, I mean, that's one of my oldest memories of, of my just sort of compassion for nature and for wildlife and for the natural world. Obviously, that has progressed through many other experiences throughout my adult life, especially in the last handful of years. But that's like a memory that kind of sticks with me that's very relevant to what we're talking about here. Well, so maybe at that moment, I guess you realized you were different from others around you. Did you? Yeah, I mean, I was always different from others around me. I was bullied a lot growing up. I think I, I just didn't have good social skills. I had divorced parents. Both my parents are are great people, but they did not have a great marriage. And it was a very angry and violent marriage until until they separated. But that was that was my experience up until I was seven. I actually divorced when I was seven. And I just didn't have social skills. I didn't seem to fit in. I was awkward. And you know, as soon as you get into middle school, the cliques start forming. And if you're not in a clique, you're you're just a nobody. And I wasn't in a clique. I didn't have really any friends. And so, yeah. So like naturally it was just a lack of social skills, a lack of self-confidence of the sort of a fear of people, which I think has also always drawn me to animals in the natural world, feeling like refuge with them because people have been scary a lot to, to me in my life. And yeah. So that was a lot of my kind of youthful youth memories. Well, so I want to flip that though. One of the questions I usually like to ask is like, how are you different or the same from that little kid? And in my opinion, you know, when I met you, you're, I remember, even after I met, when after I moved to New York and you came back to New York, I think you've been overseas for a while and you got, you just got a ton of really cool people together. You are a very well-liked person now. So that's different. You are, you're cool now. And so I guess not, I know how you're different. Something happened. The cool switch flipped maybe. And, and because you are who you are, how are you different? What I want to ask. I wouldn't say that totally. I mean, I just uh, I have moments where I can bring people together and play that role, but that's really hard for me. The energy it takes for me to socialize with people is incredible. You know, some people get energy from socializing, some people give energy. Mm -hmm. I have to give my energy to socialize, and I get my energy from my alone time, from reading, from studying things, from playing piano, from hanging out with my bees, hanging out with my dog. It's those things where I get energy from. So, even though I can do that occasionally, I do it almost because you kind of have to, and I do enjoy it in the moment, but- It drains you. Yeah, it's very draining for me. Yeah. Same. I can really relate to feeling connected to animals though, and having that sense of solace with them. I didn't grow up with pets really. I mean, unless you count fish, which, I mean, they're animals. Pizza rats. You they're in town to town. Pizza rats. Yeah, lots of pizza rats, although we never adopted any, so they didn't live in my house, thankfully. Okay. <laughs> But didn't really grow up with a dog, but we have a dog now. And we've been, he's three years old, so we've had him since he was a puppy. And he is the most wonderful being, I have to say. I mean, I love my husband and I love my children. 
but there's something about the way that I love that dog and the way that dog loves each of us that's just beyond words. He will literally, he'll always come to the door when I come home, despite what time of, of night it is. So he's usually passed out by 7.30 or 8 o'clock. And he doesn't do this with anyone else either. But if it's me coming home, and it could be later than that, like 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock, midnight, he will come running to the door. Sometimes it's like a lazy walk because he's just he's just gotten up out of his sleep, but he will always come to the door to say hello with his tail wagging to greet me. And I just find that so special because my own family, the humans in my family don't do that, <laughs> right? Like when it's 11 o'clock in the whole house, is asleep. No one's, no one's at the door greeting me except for my, my dog. So I think there is something, there's something about animals. Your, your dog, Nala, I only have come to know Nala through your holiday cards, but she's played a I mean, she's a member of your family. Huge role. Huge role. I mean, she's my my best friend. And yeah, I mean, there's no words that really encapsulate my love for Nala. Dogs are incredible. I've been rescuing dogs since I was in middle school. And dogs are so fat. We could do a whole... I'm actually doing a podcast next week about how to manage the mental health of your dog. Because it's something most dog owners have no idea about. And animals like dogs, like elephants that are incredibly social creatures and cognitive and thoughtful creatures, and so many animals are, really, they do have mental health needs. They they do have mental health illness. It's just different from people, but it is there. But yeah, dogs, I mean, dogs are a fascinating species in the sense that we created dogs through, through hundreds of years of domestication. We actually evolved the genome of a dog to actually rely on a human companion for fulfillment. And that's what makes them so different. A lot of people will say, well, if we have dogs as pets, why can't we have a jaguar as a pet? And it's like, no, Mm -hmm. the dogs have actually evolved. They literally have changed. And we can't undo that. Should we have done that? Maybe, maybe not. But we can't undo that evolution. We now have a, you know, I think we have a responsibility to take care of them because we created them. We're the ones that made them have this codependency on us and, they're incredible for your own mental health, the sort of love they'll give you if you give it to them. And I think that's, to me, one of the fundamental differences about sort of modern Western society and the animal kingdom. And for a moment, I'm going to put, I'm going to explain why indigenous people are closer to the latter than the former in that, what are you prioritizing for day to day? Well, in the animal kingdom, you're also, you're ultimately prioritizing for your basic needs to be fulfilled and community and enjoy with others you're not prioritizing for growth and and greed. And you're not saying, I need more than my neighbor. I need more than this. I don't have enough. In our modern Western world and, you know, modern China world as well, that is priority one. I need more. I need more things. I need more stuff. And it really creates a lot of problems. But when I spend time with people in indigenous worlds, like in Laos, where we do some of our elephant work, for example, they're not thinking about that. They're thinking about how do I get my basic needs met and how do I just enjoy myself with my community? How do I support each other? How do I like, it's amazing how much joy are in these communities with such what we would term basic means. And I think there's a purity to that that is so special and important and doesn't mean there's not going to be outliers. There's outliers. And I don't know if you guys know this about wolves. One of my I think one of the most interesting species to study, they actually resemble our social dynamics more than any other animal on earth. But in in wolf packs, wolves respect the balance of their ecosystem to the point where if any wolf in a pack overhunts, overindulges, has that greed that can happen in the animal kingdom as well, the pack immediately kills that wolf. They have zero tolerance for greed. They have zero tolerance for going beyond what we need to survive because they are ingrained in the balance of their ecosystem. It's almost like they understand their role as apex predators and they understand how abusing that actually hurts them in the long run in a way that we humans have not figured out yet. Two things things that come to mind is I had a professor once say, and he was saying this in a very alpha species kind of way, civilization is a rebellion against nature. And he was saying nature is a negative thing versus nature as a positive thing to your point about indigenous groups of folks who are more in tune, right? With, with balance. hundred percent. I think about that a lot. And I also think about just to nerd out on you, the first matrix movie when, I don't know if you remember this part where 
Agent Smith tells Neo, it's like, we tried to, the, the AI robots that had killed humanity, we tried to classify what humans were, and the closest equivalent was a virus. And I don't know if I agree with that. And correlation is not causation, man, but I was like, oh, shit. You move into a territory, you kind of take over and make it your own, right? You just dominate it. I've heard that before, and I've heard that from colleagues of mine in conservation. It's a very dangerous thought because it's it's hyperbolic and extremism in any situation, in any argument, in any position is not the answer. And the truth is humans actually, this planet was at its peak sort of biodiverse self with post Neanderthal state. So humans are actually incredibly important for biodiversity. We play a really important role. It's not about getting rid of humans. Humans yeah, yeah. are not a virus. Our behavior has gone too unchecked and it's like it's a combination of our population size and our consumerism. And it's those two things in tandem that are just causing now a lot of damages and will continue to do until until we put those two things in check. We do need measures of population control, but here's another lesson on population control. I used to think, well, a lot of our population control is happening in the developing worlds. We have to give them sex education. We have to give them access to sex protection and all these things. That's actually not the answer. You know what the most powerful way to regulate population in a developing world is? Do you guys want to guess? Being into Dungeons and Dragons? <laughs> no. <laughs> you want to guess again? <laughs> it's actually empowering female business owners. Oh, yeah. yeah. Because yeah. Yeah. if in a society you only give women, the only identity option they have is motherhood and they have no other options, people need identity. They need a purpose. And so they are going to default to that again and again. But if you actually empower women, if you actually support women, if you actually bring in microfinancing to those communities and education and teachings, some of those women, not all of them, will decide, I actually do want to own a business. I actually do want to create something. And some of them will choose motherhood and you mm -hmm. automatically get more balance. But if mm -hmm. you only give women, their only choice is, is motherhood as an identity, well, then they're going to have kids and they're going to have a lot of kids. And so population control is not about as so much as one child policies and access to sex, sex education. It's really just, if you just empower women and support women in these developing worlds, that can be an amazing, probably the best tool we have for population control. I can get behind that. <laughs> Jay, what did you want to be when you grew up? Originally, I wanted to be, when I was very little, I wanted to be an archaeologist. Why? I was obsessed with dinosaurs. I just wanted to find them. <laughs> and you didn't become an archaeologist. And as we alluded, we all did marketing stuff, cool companies, cool brands. You didn't start in conservation. So I guess less about the journey, but what happened in your life for you to say, no, I'm all in. I got to collect bees. I got to set up a conservation movement in Laos, et cetera. What happened? It was spending the first 10, 12 years of my working life, so post-college, just being in the rat race for in competition and career competition and getting caught up in it and being miserable as fuck. And that obsession with my work actually was making me a bad leader, making me a bad employee, making me a bad colleague because I took everything personal. All I had was my work. All I had was my career trajectory and the material things I got lost in chasing. And a lot of that was I have had such self-confidence issues in my life. And I thought, well, if I accumulate a lot of stuff and I have a lot of accolades and I win a lot of awards, people will like me. And that's really what I was optimizing for. And of mm. course, when I say it out loud, it sounds absurd. And it's like, that's, that's not how it works. But when you're caught up in it and nobody's telling you otherwise, then that's how it works. And it doesn't sound absurd because I think a lot of us still are on that trajectory. Yeah. And that's the trajectory I was on. And I had to hit rock bottom. I had, when I was working at Snapchat, I had three seizures from wow. anxiety. And I just like something, something's wrong here. <laughs> like I'm literally going to die if I don't fix something. And these things don't get fixed overnight. I'm still working on it. I'm still a work in progress. I still have days where I feel very defeated. I feel like, oh, now I'm working on a startup, which is just getting going and conservation, which doesn't get all the love in the world. I'm working on all these small things after working on Snap and working on TikTok. And there's days where I feel so small and insignificant, but I can pull myself out of that now 
even if I, I can get caught up in it in a couple hours or a day, don't get me wrong, but I have the wherewithal to pull myself out of it. And I'm working now on things that are so deeply meaningful that even if I get one more person acting eco-friendly, one more person supporting conservation, one more help one person on the mental health, which is what my, my current startup is focused on. Now I feel really good about that. And so that the change was just hitting kind of rock bottom from a mental health standpoint and just being forced to look at things a different way. Yeah. But why conservationalism? Why that of all topics? Nothing gives me energy like, and I think this is true for anybody, helping marginalized life. And I look at Black Americans and honeybees, and I'm not trying to compare like at all, but I'm always careful when I say this, but they're both marginalized. They're both being exploited and they're both so valuable. They're both so such valuable life that we treasure and support. And if we don't do that, it's injustice. And so I get a lot of energy from that. And I think, again, with nature and the wildlife in particular, because I've had a lifetime where I've had a hard time with people, I've had a hard time building relationships, I've been hurt by a lot of people, I have always sort of kind of then go back to what was dogs or whatever animals I could have around me. And I just felt a connection. And I feel that connection every time I work with them. The other day, actually just two days ago, I went to save a colony of honeybees. So there was honeybees under a water meter here in LA on a neighborhood near me. And the water company, if nobody comes and safely removes them, they're going to gas them, right? Because they have yeah, the water meter guy is not responsible for also right. being a bee expert. Yeah, They need to get to the meter. And yeah, I mean, I, I took the call and I went out there and I went through the four-hour excruciating difficult process of transferring 5,000 bees from under a water meter into a hive into my car Wow, and into safety. And it was really nice because in the mor- that morning I had joined a demonstrations and that was emotionally charging and I needed something to feel good about too. And yeah, it felt great. And now I'm literally, as I'm talking to you, I'm looking out through my window in my backyard. That colony bees is is back there and they're thriving. And I gave them a little sugar water and some pollen patty yesterday as a welcome to the new neighborhood kind of gift. And it felt good. It feels good. You feel a connection and it's not about the bees don't thank me. They don't write me thank you cards. They don't come in here marching in and sing my accolades. And a bee relationship is not the same as a dog either. It's not a social or emotional relationship. It just feels good. It just feels good to help those that are voiceless, to help those that don't have an opportunity to voice their needs. And that happens both with minorities, especially in the United States, but all over the world. It's crazy to me that we don't have more indigenous tribes at the Paris Climate Change Agreement, right? And I'm not advocating that's the reason we should pull out of it, because of course not. But I do think we need more representation. And we need to give voice to all forms of life. And I get a lot of energy and empowerment by helping those who are not given that voice and seat at the table. And that happens both with minorities, but it also definitely happens with animals because they literally can't talk. They literally can't add to policy. And so there's an, an empowerment I get from trying to be be their voice for them. Yeah. Jake, can we, I want to talk about veganism. And here's why. I know you have some issues with the word, if not the I have practice. a lot of issues with the word. But I want to preface it with something. I'm not a vegan, but I fundamentally, and this is where, one of those things I know where I'm wrong and I'm acting in the wrong. And I have this argument with my best friend who is all the time. He's zero waste. He's a vegan or he, he operates that way, similar to you. And I do think I literally the same way we look back at an episode of Mad Men in the 60s where the doctor's telling the woman to smoke more cigarettes while she's pregnant. I do think in 50 years we'll still eat meat just like we still smoke cigarettes, but we are going to look back on our practices from a health and environmental and ethical standpoint at this. And it, it's so weird because I can like I can rationally argue that and see it. I can literally see the future, I feel like. Like that is going to be our opinion because of whatever Michael Pollan or what all the science tells us, right? And yet we're not. So just unpack that for me. How did you get there? It seems like a natural extension of your conservationism, but then the issues you have with it. Yeah. And I'm already regretting not sending you. I wrote actually a whole essay on this on Medium two weeks ago, and I'm regretting not sending it to you both ahead of our chat. But I can we'll definitely sort of recap. Yeah, I can recap the main takeaways. So first of all, let me explain quickly why I prefer to use the word plant-based diet versus vegan. 
true veganism should be standing against the exploitation of humans and non-humans. And it should not be just standing against the exploitation of non-humans. And true veganism is, is just not possible today because we don't have enough visibility into the supply chain of our food. We don't have the right policies in place to make that possible. And we're going to need genetically modified and, and biogenerated food to actually get there. And I detail that in my essay. But what I mean by that is, let's take two examples of foods that technically classify today as vegan. But when I explain them to you, and one you'll probably be well aware of, and one maybe not as much, would be anything but if you factor in human exploitation. So let's talk about palm oil and cashews. By the definition that we use in our society of the word vegan today, they are both vegan foods. Palm oil is one of the most destructive food types we have on the planet. We have lost 3.7 million hectares of rainforest in Indonesia and Malaysia for the palm oil industry. They have moved out indigenous people and those people at best can get very, very low paying, brutal jobs to work in that industry, but don't get any of the economic upside. We have devastated natural habitat. We have pushed orangutans on the, on the brink of extinction from this industry. And the emissions, the carbon emissions, the greenhouse emissions that come from this industry by destroying and killing all this rainforest is massive, massive, massive. The palm oil industry is absolutely devastating to humans, to non-humans, to the planet, yet it is vegan. Now let's talk cashews. 75% of the cashews in this world, not in the world, but in, in the United States from our supply chain, come from Vietnam. And the cashew harvesting industry in Vietnam is incredibly exploitative. It is incredibly dangerous. Actually harvesting cashews, there's a toxic element that needs to be removed from the cashew. And because these workers in Vietnam are put in such horrible conditions without protective gear, and they really are given no other choice, they're dying and they're getting sick and they're getting ill and they're bringing it back to their communities. And the greater cashew industry doesn't care. And so- if you're a vegan here, cashews are like essential to a lot of vegan cheeses, right? And how many vegans here in, in California are eating cashews? I guarantee you almost all of them. But that cashew industry is so much more harmful to those people than a dairy industry is to the cows. And that's not, I'm not saying so we should go eat dairy as well and just forget about it. I'm just saying, well, they, they're both exploitative. The truth costs are not exposed. Correct. And so to me, it's not possible to be vegan today because if you agree that veganism should stand for not exploiting humans or non-humans. And so that word to me is misused. I like to use the word plant-based. I have a plant-based diet. I also think I am extremely privileged for even having the ability to live on a plant-based diet. I have the income level to do that. I don't live in a food desert, which are scattered throughout our country. I am not forced I'm not living in a community where maybe like which is a lot of communities in this country where the only opportunity I have is to work at a meatpacking plant or a meat factory because that's pretty much the only game in town. And because of oppression, I don't have opportunities to to go work and educate and find other other for, forms of work. I have a mental health state that I'm relatively in check because if you're really suffering for anxiety and depression, come on, you can't ask that person to also just be being so diligent about their diet. There's so many reasons that I am privileged to be able to live plant-based right now. But veganism has this sort of elitism tone to it. It's about exclusion, not inclusion. To me, anybody that is making an effort to cut back on meat and dairy, according to what they can do with their situation, with their mental situation, with their, with their living situation, with their socioeconomic situation, as long as you're making an effort it shouldn't be like, are you doing all of it or not? And if you're not doing all of it, you're not one of us. That's bullshit. That's not how you create movements. You create movements <laughs> by actually making it people. possible for more yeah. and more people to join it. And so I just think veganism is is so backwards and so counterproductive as it is defined today. So that's why I don't like that word. I do think there's a path forward. We don't need to get into that now. I'll share my essay. There are three kind of pillars to get to veganism that are really hard to get to, but they, we can get there. And I prefer to go, I prefer to sort of refer to myself and my diet as plant-based. I have a question for you. You've told us about, is it Animalia? Is that how I say it? Yeah, Animalia. Tell us about Animalia. What is that about and where can we find information about it? Yeah, so Animalia started myself, my friend Annalie, and my sister Dana last year. And what the, the genesis of it was really 
Dana and Annalie both visited the elephant conservation I work with in Laos, separate trips in 2018. Annalie came, I think it was July, August, Annalie was there. And then Dana, I brought with my, with my mother there in December. And they were both just incredibly moved by it. And they both shared the same feedback of, we both love animals. We have no idea what, what really goes on in conservation. We don't really know anything about it. And yeah, I mean, bringing them to Laos and immersing them in it, but that's not scalable, right? To do for everybody. And right. so really the goal of Animalia is to just connect wildlife enthusiasm with actual conservation. And so we do that through a weekly newsletter, which is we're kind of rounding up the conservation climate news. We do it with the podcast we just started. We do it digital events. We just finished an event on pangolins. We had a thousand people attend. It was amazing. Some of the top experts working with this species is the most trafficked animal in the world, wildlife in the world. Actually, humans are the most trafficked animal in the world. Pangolins are, are next are next behind humans. I didn't know that. That's fascinating. And they're being trafficked to zoos and aquariums? Or no, they're being trafficked for their meat and their scales. So oh, primarily wow. for the scales are used in a lot of traditional Chinese medicine. And the meat is used in a lot of parts of Africa, China, and Southeast Asia. But also now there's even pangolin scale cowboy boots being sold in the United States. So let's not, let's not sort of give the U.S. a pass on this one. And so these are the things we do. And then we also make these 100% recycled tees, hats, and hoodies celebrating the animals. My sister's an incredible designer. She designs the clothes. And then we they're meant to sort of just be marketing, if you will, for these animals. And then we share those proceeds with the conservation. So we try to raise awareness and funding. Essentially, we just raised $5,000 at this, this event we just did for the last week with pangolins. And we're just trying to, the hard work is the people on the ground doing conservation. And so we're trying to connect wildlife enthusiasts with conservation in a more direct way. That's essentially the goal of Animalia. So we've only got a few more minutes, Jay, but look, if we can't all go rescue bees, we can migrate to plant-based diets. We can go buy a rad hoodie on I Love. I think it's I Love Animalia. Uh, I Love Animalia, yeah. Yeah. What's the path to get started? To take someone out of the majority into your minority so the minority becomes a majority of kind of a more ethical way forward. If you had to give someone advice on two questions to ask themselves or two decisions to make or three sacrifices to make, what would you tell them to do? Yeah, it's a good question. And it's a timely question because I'm, I'm going through the same question myself right now on what actions I can take to better support Black Americans. And I'm realizing I can go purchase more from local Black businesses and I can support rallies for local black politicians. And I can take some of my free time and freely tutor local black youth. And there's so much we can all do in that regard. So I'm going through that same process on that front right now. But on the environmental front, man, there's so many little things that we can do. Again, let's talk about food for a second. It's not about going either you're all plant-based or you're the enemy. That is not helpful. Just cut back a little bit. I encourage people to say, hey, why don't you just, if, you, if you're the type of person who just consumes meat and dairy all the time, start eating it one meal a day or get to a place where you're not, or even, even, even easier. Start saying, I'm not going to eat meat or dairy after four o'clock. Get to a place where you're eating it only on the weekend. Just start to shave a little bit. And just th those little changes, if everybody made those little changes, it would, it would make a big impact. Education is an important one. Spend time reading. Spend time gathering information. Spend time learning about the natural world and its role. All the information is out there. And that's the, the beauty of the internet is all the information is out there and also too much information is out there. So it can be tough to navigate, but there are resources out there and it's not that hard to find them and, and, and learn. And little things like just try to consume less trash. I have a local compost in my backyard and that dramatically shuts down on the amount of waste I create by having that compost. And you don't need a big plot of land. You can have a patio in an apartment and you can have a compost bin. So it's not something where you need a house to be composting. Make sure you're, you're recycling. Don't use straws and not just at local businesses, but just don't use them, period. Just don't, don't partake in it. Care about the apparel. You're, look into the supply chain. You shouldn't. You probably shouldn't be buying from Forever Twenty One, H and M, Zara, fast fashion, and it's terrible for the environment. Just make the change the way you're you're buying your clothes. There, I mean, there's. It depends on the person. Different things appeal to different people, but there's so many little things you can do that don't require you to go save bees from water meters or fly to Laos and work in conservation or start companies like or donate thousands of dollars. That's what people feel like is like, oh, it's either that or nothing I can do. No, there's so many small things 
you can do in your life. If nothing else, and it's the same thing with racism, just talk about it. One of the simplest things I encourage everybody who's not black or brown to do is talk about racism with your other non-black and brown friends. Don't talk about it with your black and brown friends. They they live it every day. They don't need reminded of it. Talk about it with your white friends. Talk about it. Just talk about it. Acknowledge it. And same thing with the environment. Talk about it. Just talk about it. Have conversations about it. With yeah. your non-environmental friends, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's a hugely impactful and it's something everybody can do. It's something everybody can do. That's a great list. I like that list a lot because it's so, it's just really simple, accessible things that we can all be doing and just kind of just being more mindful of the impact that we have and what our choices have on the world. So thank you Absolutely. for that list. With the way we spend our money and our time has a dramatic impact on the quality of life for those that are marginalized and exploited. Well, Jay, we've had a great conversation so far. And I think we're ready to move to the speed round. Are you ready for speed rounds? All right. I'll do my best. <laughs> Every, everyone's so freaked out by speed rounds. Everyone? Yeah. Everyone kind of pauses. Hey, we're going to talk about racism. Oh, sure. I'll be on the podcast. Speed round. Yeah. They freeze up. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> like it's easier to have like speed round of like your favorite movies. The speed round on like sensitive political topics is a little daunting. Right. Well, these are easy. These are about favorite movies and, and these should be, these should be quick. Yeah, yeah. All right. Here's the first one. What's one thing about you no one expects? Hang on. I mean, no one expects. I, and I have to just, the, the first thing that comes first to mind. First thing. Yeah. First thing that comes to mind. Probably that I'm a beekeeper just because they're so rare. And most yeah. beekeepers are over 60 years old. <laughs> You're an old man. There's not a lot of like young beekeepers. So I guess, yeah, I'll, I'll say that. What's a book or movie that has characters you relate to? Oh man, so many. A Land Before Time oh, is, a, nice. is a big one for me. Littlefoot. Yeah. I kind of felt like Littlefoot my whole life. <laughs> that is a great movie. That's a great movie. And yeah, and it's a good movie because I don't think anybody under 30 probably has ever seen it. You know what? I've got to show it to my kids. You might be right about that. Yeah, it's a great movie. Thank you for that reminder. What's one place you want to go back to or spend more time in? Columbia. Okay. Why? Just the energy. They've the got really great coffee. Yeah, actually, I haven't touched coffee in 16 years. <laughs> but the positivity and the enthusiasm for life. And, and this is this is indicative of a lot of communities in South America, I've noticed. And the travels I've had there, Brazilians are very similar, Chileans. There's just an enthusiasm for being alive that Colombians have and that I've noticed is common in South America that I think is is kind of infectious and sort of fun to be around. What's your favorite mom dish? My favorite mom dish. Well, they're all they're all meat and dairy. <laughs> so it's like my mom and I have had a lot of this conversation quite a few times because technically, so when I did eat it, obviously she made. So this is a hard question because my mom didn't cook a lot because she worked four jobs to sort of keep food on the table. It was like literally dinosaur chicken nuggets. It's not a mom. I know it's like not really like her dish per se. She did make some really great chicken noodle soup. I'll say her chicken noodle soup was was fantastic. Still is. I just don't eat it. <laughs> oh, yeah. All right, Sharon, I want to ask this one because I have to ask it especially. Okay, go ahead. We normally say, what's your least favorite food? But I think I could find that answer very quickly. In the plant-based diet that you have, what is your Oh, yeah. Radishes, 100%. Oh, you're, yeah. You're not going to get me anywhere near a radish. I don't like those either. Radishes oh, are terrible. no good. Like I've just pickled radishes maybe I could tolerate. But yeah, I'm with you on that one. You can have the pickled radishes. <laughs> I will. Who's someone out there that you'd want to interview on a podcast? Oh, man. There's so many people that I have lined up for my podcast <laughs> interview that I'm excited about. Who's the one that you haven't lined up that you want? Who's the get? Okay. Yeah, that's a that's a better way of framing it. Because they're totally listening to the show. <laughs> no. Yeah, they're totally listening. It's a hard question because I'm not right now inspired by a lot of global leaders. <laughs> yeah. It's not in, from a global leadership standpoint and political standpoint. It's not inspiring time. I'm not inspired by a lot of corporate leaders either <laughs> or it celebrities. Who's, it could be someone who's already passed away. It doesn't have to be someone living in our time right now. Got it. It's an obvious answer. Uh, it's cliche, but still one of the most inspiring people for me of all time is Nelson Mandela. And I think would just be such an interesting person to ask a lot of questions from. In terms of modern days, I do find Satya Nadella very inspiring at Microsoft. I think he's the sort of best leader we have right now in America, a uh, corporate leader company leader we have is 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 Satya. I'd love to interview Ellen just because I think she's so hilarious. 
Yeah. I, I know she, I just think she's one of the funniest human beings ever. And I think she'd be fun to talk to as well. So last question. Are you ready, Jay? Yeah. And definitely answer this in the scope of why you're on the show. What does being a model minority mean for you? Again, because I'm, I'm a straight white male, my minority here is just sort of my viewpoint, right? It's yeah. not really, yep. it's yeah. not my yep. race. It's not my gender. It's not my sexuality. Yeah. So to me, it, it is having a viewpoint that is counter to the sort of the mass society and having a belief system that you're willing to fight really to the death for, that you're willing to sacrifice everything for. And as you said at the top of the show, Raman, it's, it's, a, it's a shame that having deep values of something above yourself and your own needs is a minority viewpoint because that's not how it should be, but it is. It is a minority view. And so I guess to me, it is having a viewpoint and a purpose and a way of living that is not representative of the majority of society. 100%. Jay, I really, I wasn't sure where this conversation was going to go, but I'm glad we had it. I think it reminds me of a conversation I have with my best friend who, who shares a lot of points of view as you. And the difference between you guys is he gets frustrated because other people aren't there yet. And what I see you doing on the airwaves with the startups that you're putting your energy into is you're trying to be the change you want to see, right? And so keep doing it, man. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you guys for having me. And that's our show. Like what you heard? Please subscribe, leave a review, and a five-star rating on your favorite podcasting platform. Now more than ever, people need to be hearing these stories. Please share our show with a friend or three. Want to learn more or got something to share? Visit modmypod.com or email us, hi mom, at modmypod.com. You can also follow us on Instagram and Twitter at modminpod. We'd love to hear from you. Now here's a preview of our next episode. I couldn't speak English at the time. I was still speaking Chinese at home. And so when my parents took me to kindergarten, I would play with the kids and some kids spit on me. And so I would go to the teachers and point and try to gesture. And I think at some point I probably punched a kid and the, the principal had to call my parents in. And they were like, oh, did she get picked on? If she got picked on, then good. She's doing the right thing. <laughs> so this is, again, why I feel like I was raised free range. You're so young at that point that you don't even know what's going on. That's it for now. I've been Raman Segel. And I'm still Sharon Lee Tony. Remember, we're all modern minorities out there. We'll talk to you soon. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club! Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.